Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Yeah, hey guys, uh, uh, I'm here to talk about uh, this podcast today. Uh, You might know me, uh, Chris Roberts. Uh, I created the Wing Commander video games, and then I had the opportunity in 1998 to direct a feature film based on my beloved property, and I just have to say, I'm so goddamn sorry. It just, it didn't turn out good. Like, here's the thing, I love films, and I thought, like, when you make a movie, you gotta do it, you gotta do it right, right? And so I'm, I've been a big Tarantino fan my whole life, and, uh, uh, you know, because uh, apparently I was born in 1987, but... Uh, I just wanted to do a movie like him, so I did all this cocaine because I thought that's how you make a movie. You do a lot of cocaine. I mean, I, I know Blues Brothers had it built into the budget, and I thought, well, if I'm doing the Blues Brothers of space movies, which is what my idea was, then I'm going to want to do some cocaine. And then we did the movie, but that's not what it turned out to be at all. And we got Freddie Prinze, and, you know, I like the guy. He's a great guy, but, you know, and his dad was real funny, but he just he wasn't right for the role. I don't know why we did it. And we got those goddamn cats, and those cats, those fucking cats. I don't know how. How do we not build the cats the right size for the set? It was a fucking clusterfuck. So I'm really, really sorry. Sorry about that, guys. I just, I give me a, I, I get down on my knees and I beg you for your forgiveness. But here's the thing: I'm making a new thing called Star Citizen, and you should give me some money for it. It's a, I made it rate about 500 million so far for it, but we're really going big. And if you like Wing Commander, maybe you should just give a little bit of money to me. And I don't know why I sound like this, but I'm really hyper. So, guys, good luck, have fun, enjoy the podcast, the British movies, and I'm really sorry for Wing Commander. I'm sorry you got subjected to that. Hey, Brendan and Jason, you guys are bros. I'm out. Peace. Uh, are we sure that wasn't Vince Russo? I, it's a good chance it might have been Vince Russo in, in uh, a costume. I mean, I've never actually seen Chris Roberts, so I don't know what he... Although I have seen Vince Russo, and that guy did look kind of Italian. He got very broy at he the end. He got very broy at the end. No, I think, I think that was Vince Russo. Is Vince Russo... What? Was it Daniel Day-Lewis as Vince Russo as Chris Roberts? I don't even want to, I don't even want to entertain that notion right now. Jason. Although I am entertaining the notion of if they ever do make a movie about the WCW, that perhaps they should get Daniel Day-Lewis to play Vince Russo. Does that mean he'll actually get employed by a wrestling company, become their writer, destroy the company from within, and then do the role? Yeah, obviously. That's what you have to do for that role. Yes, do it! <laughs> Watch out, Global Pro Elite. <laughs> what the fuck is that? I don't know. I'm assuming there's a wrestling organization called that. <laughs> Watch out, Evolve. There you go. Watch out, uh, AEW. Wrestling references aside... This is a podcast. Jason is back, by the way, after he uh, is now a married man. Yes, I am a married man. But what is our podcast called? A Married Man. A Married Man. Watches a movie with a guy that's not married, but pretty much is. (laughs) It's a little uh, long-winded. But but alternatively, you can also call us for Scream. And Country. 
and we talk about British films on this podcast. We talk about the top 100 British films of all British time as conceived in the British year of 1900 and British 99. British film. That's what we're here to do. Talk about British film. And we're going to do it today. We got a doozy for you. We do. Uh, we do have a doozy for you. And well, before we talk about this week's film, Jason, we need to talk about three weeks ago. Yeah. All those weeks ago. All those weeks ago. We need to talk about a very lengthy discussion we had. Let's read some comments about the film Brazil. Brazil. One of uh, my favorite movies on this list that we've watched so far. Uh, Aside classic. from The English Patient. Yeah, aside from that one. <laughs> Again, uh, if, if we look at the fish hook count, in this movie it was zero. Fail. Fail. So people said some stuff about Brazil. Did they? Uh, Victoria Stewart. Scottish princess, I assume. Victoria Stewart. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Okay. Uh, she says, I really like it. I don't think it's perfect, but it's messy chaos is part of what's cool about it. Yeah, it, it's got that, you know, that, that anarchic Terry Gilliam feel. Yeah, it's yeah. a narc. It's a narc, like a like like somebody yeah, sold us for drugs. Yes, Terry Gilliam sold me out for drugs. <laughs> I was like that guy over there, he's got weed. That, that by the way, flawless Terry Thank Gilliam you. impression. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> I sound I sound American. I sound like I'm a British person doing an American accent, but it's only because I've lived in Britain for so long. <laughs> Terry, is that you? It's so nice to be here, folks. Oh, I got Terry Gilliam just walked in the studio. I'm so folks. glad you guys like my movie. Oh, it's great. Um, we are going to make some cuts though, if that's okay. Uh well, we can talk about that. Okay, great. Yeah, could you just step over to this room with all these knives? Uh, yeah. Well, oh, nice try, Terry. <laughs> you guys are great. See you later. Get out of here, you maniac. Bye. But our next comment, Brendan, is from one Andrew Littlefield. And Andrew says, I totally love it. Every frame feels creative and exciting, and the dark humor is first rate. The story is often surreal, but I'm fine with that. It's 1984 mixed with Monty Python. And yeah, I it is. We kind of said that. We, I think we kind of said that too, didn't we? We, we? we may have exactly said that, but 19- he gets it. He gets it. Yeah, we don't know that he half. actually listened to the podcast. He could have just told us what he thought of the movie. Oh, no, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying I think we also said that. Yeah, yeah. We, we understand that. 1984 and a half was the original title. Erica Carmona says, I love, love, love this movie. Nice. Watched it for a college class on sci-fi and the history of imperialism. Best class ever. That's what she says. And I was surprised I had never seen, I, n- I had never even heard of it. It's definitely rough around the edges, but I kind of like that. So that's kind of a running theme here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, messy chaos. Mm-hmm. And history of imperialism does sound like an awesome class. I fi- as soon as I read that, I was like, Jason's going to sign up. I will sign up. Erica, get at Jason on Twitter. You have to fly wherever you are to go to that school. Yep. You know what? I'm not even going to fly. I'm going to walk. I'm going to force gump it. And that's the end of that. That was one of his phrases, right? Uh, and that's the end of that. And that's all I got to say about that. That's what he said whenever he killed someone in the movie. And that's right. All, boom. That's all I have to say about that. I don't know which Forrest Gump version you watched. I've, I saw the one Billy Bob Thornton. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, it's the same movie. That's I like them French appetizers. Lou S. We're canceled. Uh, his last name is S. It's not like an abbreviation. Mm-hmm. Lou S. says, absolutely love it in all its absurd glory. It's the most I've paid for a single movie. I feel you, Lou. I, I did the same thing. Uh, the Criterion release was worth every penny. And it is. It's such a great release. It's got that documentary. It's got the uh, the Love Conquers All cut. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Pick Love it up, Love Conquers folks. All, the best cut of the movie. Absolutely. Where you, you walk away feeling good about yourself. <laughs> uh, Cassie Durden, Tyler's sister. 
Is she real? I don't know. Maybe uh, yeah. maybe she is a, a manifestation of Eric, Erica Carmona. <laughs> maybe Cassie Dirt and Erica Erica Carmona need to take a selfie together and prove that they're not the same person. Let us know, folks. So Cassie Durden says, "I love Terry Gilliam films and his whole air duct futurism aesthetic, but I just couldn't hang with Brazil." Well, yeah, hey, not every movie's for everyone. I understand it. It's not it's not the easiest movie to watch out of the gate. It's very weird, and <laughs> uh, you know, but. I like Terry Gilliam, so I I like this movie a lot. And uh, Ed Hawks kind of joins that same uh, similar wavelength, doesn't he? He says that uh, I like the look of the of a Terry Gilliam movie, but narratively they don't do much for me. I haven't seen them all, th- all though, and have heard the Fisher King is different. I've not seen the Fisher King, so I cannot comment. But yeah, most of his movies are pretty weird and pretty in this vein. I would say. Sharon Horwat says, I really love this movie quite a bit. My dad watched this movie with his friends when it first came out, and they all got mad because they hated it. (laughs) They let him pick the movie because it was his birthday, too. Well, fuck them. Yeah. That's what I say to that. Dad's friends, get at us on Twitter. Yeah, come on. Come at us, bros. Come at at us, bros of... What's uh, Robert James Cole, what's he got to say? He says he saw it in college, but I was never in the mood for it. The first time I put it on for friends, said friends were talking about it, so I talking through it, so I ended up shutting it off. Their chief complaint was that they didn't understand it. How could they when they were talking? Good point, Robert. The second time I put it in, I watched it with my youngest brother, whose hamster had just died, so there was a bit of a grim mood cast over this viewing. As a result, I never really liked it. Didn't hate it, but it had merit. But I didn't enjoy it, though maybe that's the point. I do find quite a bit of the humor in the fact that Bob Hoskins played a plumber in this movie some years before playing another, more famous plumber in the Super Brothers movie. Both equally great films. Equally great roles, absolutely. Equally great films. Man, imagine if Terry Gilliam had directed the Mario movie. It might have actually looked like a Mario movie. Uh, I was going to say, it might not have looked that much different from the Mario movie that exists. That's true. It does have that weird aesthetic that he might have liked. <laughs> um, the, the script probably would have been better. Um, I sure hope so. Steve Bucciolato, and if I am butchering that name, I apologize. <laughs> I'm sure he's never heard that before. <laughs> God, we're great. Bucciolate at Starbucks. Okay, sorry. I'm very Leave sorry. Leave this guy alone. He was nice enough to comment on this. Thank you for your comment. Thank you, Moving Steve. on. No, so, so his comment is, uh, I, it was my favorite for many years. Recently rewatched a director's cut, the latest Criterion version, I believe, and found that some of it doesn't hold up as I'd hoped. Uh, and more critically, I think this cut was vastly inferior to the theatrical release. A lot of extra fat and some inexplicable cuts like the removal of genuinely funny jokes. The one that comes to mind is when Sam is watching his mother's first treatment, her face wrapped in plastic, and the doctor says, You see? Already twice as beautiful as before. To which Sam replies, My god, it works. For some reason, Gilliam cut the punchline and the scene falls flat and is just uncomfortable. I was confused and disappointed by some changes like that. Weird. I've never seen that version. I, I, if he's talking about the yeah the original theatrical cut that was like 10 minutes shorter or longer. 10 shorter. minutes shorter, yeah. Shorter, yeah. It was 10 minutes shorter than this one. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so I can't say. I, I think that one is available on an old Universal DVD, but I think most of the Criterion discs all have the 143 cut on there. Yeah, that's weird that he would do that. Yeah. I don't know. Directors are strange sometimes, you know, and sometimes we shouldn't let them back at their films. Uh, we, we know one. That's never backfired. What are you talking about? I just want two sugars in my coffee. Oh, George Lucas, thanks for coming by. Oh, I heard no, you. George. I thought you were saying my name, so I figured I'd stop by. Uh, uh, what are you guys doing? We're talking about um, uh, how every director should be allowed to d- 
go back to any movie they've ever made before. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So uh, that's good, guys. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take off. You guys, okay. uh, you guys keep doing what you're doing. Okay. Can you can you maybe not take our last Coke Zero? No, I uh, I would like this Coke Zero. Uh, do you guys have any sugar? I'm gonna put a little Coke sugar, a little Coke sugar in this little, Coke Zero. A little Coke sugar? Yeah, a little Coke sugar. You guys uh, never had Coke sugar? It's how I got through the first Star Wars movie. No, I, I'm I'm such, Jerry. Get him out of here. I got it, boss. Oh, thank you. See you later, guys. Let's just go, Mr. Lucas. This is a freaking zoo today. We've we've got a staff. We've got people coming in and out. Everything is crazy. We're still reading comments. Okay, we better so, finish it up. we got one more. Okay, we got one more. Haley Cruz. What's Haley she saying? Cruz. Haley says, I adore this movie. Though I th- think Kim Greased wasn't the best person for the role, she doesn't deserve to get treated as badly as she did. Did she get bad treated badly? Yeah, Terry Gilliam didn't like her. Oh, well, fuck him. She's <laughs> lovely. But the set design is inspired. The script is all over the place, yet retains its central message throughout. Jonathan Price is magnificent. Damn straight he is. And I especially love Michael Palin's affable punch clock villain. Punch Clock Villain, by like the way. That, that is, is my new band term. name, number one. I'm uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we are Punch Clock Villain. Good night. Jason and the Punch Clock Villains. That's right. I love it. <laughs> uh, okay, well, those are the comments, so thank you, everyone, for thank commenting Thank you so on, much. On Brazil. But before we go, Jason, we have one more thing to do. We yes. need to compare this movie, which is number 64 on the BFI Top 100, to number 64 on the AFI Top 100, and that is Sidney Lumet's classic satire of network news. Network. Network. Have you seen it, Jason? I have seen Network. Network is a fucking great movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, for me personally, Brazil Brazil goes deeper in my life, and I've I've been aware of it for a longer time. I I watched Network in university, I think, and it is great. And it actually, it's funny, because it seems to have kind of some similar themes as far as like kind of striking back against the man and uh, the power of that. For sure. Striking back against the manpower. (laughs) Striking back against the manpower. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that that rebellious kind of feel throughout it, even though things go, I think, way worse for Sam than they do for the for Mister Network. Uh, mm, for Howard Beale, spoiler alert: <laughs> he is assassinated. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but at least he doesn't sit there half alive or half dead. They just they kill him, right? Yes. It has been a while since I've seen it. Yeah, he gets shot. He gets killed on the air. Yeah. Well, that's hey, that's a good ending to any movie. So you're uh, by a by a slim margin, Brazil. Brazil, yeah, but but you should watch Network because it's great. Uh, and uh, like I've I love Network too. Um, and also, uh, uh, did Sidney Lumet also direct uh, Dog Day Afternoon? He did. So watch that because just I just want to say that out loud again. Uh, watch Dog Day Afternoon because it's one of the best movies ever made and it is still relevant today. And it has a crazy twist that you won't see coming if you don't know about it. Attica! Oh no! I'm talking about the characters. No, I, yeah. the, the okay. reason, the reasoning why that's all yeah, happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's it's nuts, and it's not handled in the way you would expect. And in it's 19... one of the one of the few John Cazale movies that uh, exists. So check that out. He plays Salvatore, and he's great. And it's not uh, that twist is not handled in the way you would expect a 1975 movie no. to handle that. No, so it's fairly so check it out. fairly progressive in that way. So I'm gonna say, I'm gonna go with Brazil. It's close, though. Yeah. I really like Network 2, but Brazil Both? seems like a little bit of a deeper, more, more rich, maybe, slightly. If you're raring to tough. go, if you're raring to go, this is a doubleheader that, uh, oh, God. that you could do some night. Start with Brazil. Yeah. And then, go, uh, well, I, no, I'd say finish with Brazil, actually. <laughs> Brazil's a little, a little headier. <laughs> well, it has, certainly has a little more humor in it. True. Uh, Network's pretty fucking Network funny. Network has some funny moments, too. Well, that's uh, that's that's gonna do. That's gonna wrap it up. We need to talk about this week's film, Jason. Number sixty on the list. Blow up. Blow up. 
that jazzy intro, we're going to talk about today's movie, baby. Ooh, yeah. Just all smooth like that. Today's movie is from 1966. Six. From uh, director Michael... Michelangelo Antionone. Almost. Almost. Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up. Number 60 on the list. Number 60. 6 0. The big 6 0. Approaching that birthday pretty soon myself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Starring newcomer David Hemmings, Mm -hmm. uh, Vanessa Redgrave, who we did actually talk about when we talked about the uh, miniseries of The Go Between, Mm. very briefly. Uh, Sarah Miles as Patricia. John Castle as Bill, Verushka, model named Verushka, playing herself, mm-hmm. uh, Jane Birkin as the blonde, and Jillian Hills as the brunette, because they don't have names. No, and actually, the lead character does not have a name either, but he is listed as Thomas. So that's how we will refer to him. Right. Yeah, his name never does come up. Never. Not once. Um, and I don't believe Vanessa Redgrave's name comes up either, but she is playing a character named Jane. Mm-hmm. So, Thomas Jane. <gasps> That's where he got his name from. That's where his mom was like, I'm a big blow-up fan. She loves that movie. Yeah. She's not happy with the De Palma version. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll get into that at some point. Um, So, blow-up, Jason. 1966, number 60 on the list. It's like close, right around the middle. It's one of those... Just after the middle, you might say. Yeah, yeah. Right right around it. Like, close to it. It's uh, one of of those art house films there, much like... uh, Actually, I'd say more so than Women in Love. I'd say Women in Love is a lot more straightforward than this. Um... What's it about? Well, first off, I need to say that when you told me what this movie was and the basic premise of it, I was sure, A, it was going to be in black and white, and B, it was going to be like a Hitchcock thriller. Mm -hmm. And then, after I had watched it, and you hadn't yet, I had texted you and said, just just a warning, (laughs) not necessarily a quality warning, but I'm just warning you it is not what you think it is. Nope. 100%. It's not that at all. Although, that could be a good Hitchcock movie, and I'm sure that movie pretty much exists in various forms. I mean, the... North by Northwest. I'm pretty uh, sure the... 39 De, Steps. De Palma, <laughs> I, I think the De Palma movie is what you might have thought this would be. It'd be more... Is more like that? More, yeah. more kind of a thriller? I think so. So, yeah, what is this movie about? Well, it's about Thomas. He's our main character. We never hear his name, but that's what it said on the IMDb page, so that's what we're going And with. Wikipedia. And Wikipedia. So he's a photographer in the London, I believe, in the swinging 60s. Oh, it's dead heat in the middle of the swinging 60s. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, this movie is, like, from the from the opening credits and the, and the music and the way it's shot, it is super, super 60s. In a good way. Uh, the music, as we know, is uh, was composed by Herbie Hancock. Herbie Hancock. You know, uh, of, uh, what is it? Uh, of Tommy Boy fame. Of Tommy Boy fame, absolutely. <laughs> the, the one joke that I remember that I love. Well, I mean, I love that whole movie, but that one always sticks out. I mean, I was going to say, there's no way you don't remember Fat Man in a Little Coat. Uh, yeah, well, absolutely. And <laughs> Fat guy in a little coat. Fat guy in a little coat. And uh, housekeeping. Um, so yeah, he's a photographer in London during the 60s. Like, this this movie is kind of like a grounded, real-life inspiration for Austin Powers, I think, in some ways. From the aesthetic and, and to how Thomas acts. This but, has to be, yeah, this is one of those movies that is exactly what Austin Powers is parodying. I yeah, think. yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's definitely a source for this. So he lives a fast life surrounded by beautiful women, photographing them, and sometimes even fucking them. Mm. It's the life, Brendan. It's what every man wants. That's the life for uh, me. You know, and this pays the bills, but he's a photographer at heart. He's a real photographer. He's not just photographing chicks, uh, you know, for magazines. That's his side hustle. His real passion is photography in general. And he's, uh, 
And he, he is doing that for a book he's writing. Well, a book he's writing, a, a collection he's assembling. And he had gone to a night a flop house the night before to go take a pictures of some homeless guys uh, living there and, and making them look, uh, you know, very sad in the photographs, you know, like photographers do. Well, and he was undercover, too. So you spend oh. the beginning of the movie um, seeing him in kind of the drag, like, um, rags. Yes. And you're thinking, oh... So he's he's kind of a phony, yeah. but then you realize, oh no, he's undercover in this flop house to get like more uh, grounded, realistic pictures. And one thing I need to mention that I don't have specifically written down, but will be irrelevant later, is that uh, as he's walking around, we see a a jeep uh, packed to the brim with people in white face paint, uh, making a whole hullabaloo, driving uh, around, being silly. And um, once he gets into his fancy Jaguar or whatever car he's driving, they show up and surround his car and he gives them some money and sends them off and they jump back on the jeep and they're hullabaloo and take off and it's like wait what <laughs> well i can actually tell you um the the thing that these people are doing there there was a real thing in the time in swing in london mm-hmm. and it was known as rag week okay and what rag week was was a bunch of students basically dress up and like mimes or whatever and they run around town just causing a whole ruckus hullabaloo. To uh, to to fundraise for charity. Okay. Yeah. So that was a cultural reference that I didn't get. I thought this was I some know weird, either some weird David Lynchian kind of uh, thing. All at first, <laughs> all I wrote down was the director was comparing the younger generation to the older generation because we see that, and then we see like the flop house people yeah. walk out like just strudging along. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So this movie follows Thomas over one day of his life. One day. Twenty four hours. Absolutely. So he's late getting back from his undercover operation, uh, which, you know, fucks up his uh, schedule for the day and pushes everything forward. Because that's really what this movie is about, uh, uh, scheduling. Mm-hmm. His, uh, his first shoot is with uh, Varushka. Varushka, yes. Who again, he, is playing herself. She's playing a real herself. model. She's a real model, and it's clear. And yeah. so he gets, um, he begins photographing her. And doing so in a way that, again, this is where the Austin Powers comparison comes in. Because he's basically like, yeah, baby, yeah, show the camera what you got. It's not like Austin, but he's like... He's like, yes, that's great, that's great. He's getting right in her face. He's like, uh, uh. And, and then it starts getting real sexual. Like, he, he, he at points he'll, like, reach in and kiss her ear or bite her ear or something and make her laugh and then take more pictures. And then at one point he puts her down on the floor and he, he straight up straddles her. Oh, yeah. He's on top of her and like, yeah, baby, go, go. Well, and it's getting more and more intense. Well, why don't we uh, play a little bit of this? Yeah, let's hear some of this. This is it, and, if you, and if you've seen Austin Powers, ladies and gentlemen, you will recognize some of this. Some of this uh, approach. Hunch, hunch more. Good. On the hair back, on the hair back. Come on, that's great. That's great. That's good. Good. Come on, more of that, more of that. Now give it to me. Really give it to me. Come on now. As fast as you can, as fast as you can. Give it to me, give it to me. Come on, right forward. And that music is very proto porn, <laughs> for sure. But yeah, so he's like he's like straddling her, he's on top of her, he's getting more and more intense, and then he's like, yeah, yeah, baby, there it is. And then she, he like, and then he just suddenly like slumps off her and goes over and crashes in the chair and like, Ugh. and that's legitimately, I, I believe that's almost the exact shot that was lifted for Austin Powers when he's done. He literally throws the camera up in the air and he goes, and I'm spent. Yeah, exactly. It's like the same, yeah. <laughs> And the, the, the shoot is very like sexual. Yeah, like he just like they basically just had a sex scene. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. And and I don't know if that is supposed to like from the 
lens of that era to be like, oh, look at this cool guy. But in 2019, it just real, reads as real creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least he's not like I doesn't does he doesn't appear to be uh, harassing her. They appear to that have doesn't some happen sort until of, later in the movie. <laughs> they, they appear to have some sort of existing relationship. Yeah, no, exactly. They've been working together These clearly two. for a long time. And she's kind of pissed uh, uh, at first because he's late and she has to get on a plane to go to Paris. Well, and doesn't he show up and look at her, take one look at her and say, who were you with last night? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking dick. Yeah. So he finishes photographing her. He runs over to his next gig where he's got a bunch of ladies in weird costumes, uh, very 60s costumes, especially the one that's wearing like the weird like racing helmet and goggles kind of. But but stylized kind of helmet or, or hat, it, 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 very 60s. But he's doing like, you know, one of those group shoots where they're all posing and everything. And he's just getting more and more frustrated with it. It's not doing it for him. They he doesn't like that. It. He doesn't like this one at all. He doesn't. He, uh, I, he finds them boring. To be fair, he's he's telling them to smile and not one of them smiles. Yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, he is asking them for some real simple direction that they <laughs> yeah. can't seem to pull off. But he eventually just gets frustrated, tells them all to stand there and close their eyes, and he leaves. And then, yeah, leaves he's them with their like, eyes closed. He's like, fuck this. I'm out and as he's trying to get out he is accosted by two teenage girls who are modeling hopefuls that just want to talk to him for a minute and get a session with him and he has no interest and they are known as the blonde and the brunette. the blonde and the brunette <laughs> as no names That's to be fair he doesn't have a name either he like, have a, name. a lot of people in this movie don't have yeah, names. how many people actually have names in this movie uh, actually well patricia and bill yes and i think his agent like ronnie or something yes ronnie yeah. ronnie of course so yeah he and he <clears throat> So he wants to get out. He like wanders over to where he lives, which is next door, and goes to see the woman that I think he's like he refers to her as his wife at one point, but then he's like, "Well, she's not really my wife." No, we have um, a couple kids. So this woman is with Bill. Okay, they we, are. We, we a couple. do see that later in the movie. I wasn't sure. They they are a couple, but I think throughout the movie we we're supposed to believe that she is unhappy, yeah. and I think she would rather be with him mm. because it. it Early on, we, we have this scene here where she's kind of like massaging his hair. Yeah. And you sense kind of a more of a real connection there. Mm, that's why I was confused. Her and Bill are just kind of talking from across the room. Um, I don't know if you... Uh, should we play this scene? I want to play kind of a, a bit of this scene too because this is where we get some foreshadowing, yes, right? Because Bill starts to... Because Bill's a painter. Bill's a painter and explaining his kind of method. Right. He paints in a very like modern impressionistic kind of... Not, not your traditional style of painting. And the stuff he says alludes to things that will happen later in the movie. So Absolutely. Let's, let's play a little clip here. They don't mean anything when I do them. Just a mess. Afterwards, I find something to hang on to. Like that. Like, like that leg. And it sorts itself out. And adds up. It's like finding a clue in a detective story. Don't ask me about this one, I don't know yet. Can I buy it? No. So right away we're getting this idea, he's like, I don't know what these paintings mean when I first do them, but when I look at them later, I piece them together. Yeah. Like, like a clues in a detective story. Yeah. Which will come into play later with the photographs. Or like uh, seeing a picture in the clouds almost. Yeah. Is the way I would describe it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Listen to us. We're so intelligent. We are. We're so smart. 
so yeah, anyways, he, he tools around. The, he, he needs to get out of there, so he just says, fuck it. He decides to go do what he loves, which is taking photos. So he mm-hmm. jumps in his car, and he tools around the town, and we get to see how beautiful the photograph this movie is. Oh, gorgeous. It's gorgeous, pu- pulling down these 60 streets of London where the, where the buildings are all painted red, uh, and, and just seeing like what the world looks like at that time. It, it is really beautiful, and and. Props to the Criterion Collection who did the transfer that we see here because it is stunning. So shout out to cinematographer uh, Carlo Ponti because yeah. they definitely needs mention. Oh, uh, it's so good. It's it's so camera nice. Camera work is exquisite. It re- really helps make this movie what it is. You mm. know, vibrant, full so, of life, full of life. And so he tools around town and he ends up stopping at an antique shop. And I saw the most like, and this is referred to, but like the most stereotypically coded, not even coded, but just obvious gay. Reference of two men walking poodles going to an antique shop. Well, he also later says... He later says, yeah, there's queers walking around poodles. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they did... It's like, oh, you so that wasn't just me. That was you guys. I didn't... I wasn't just reading into it too much. That was literally what they thought. <laughs> so when he goes to this antique shop, he goes in, he's taking a look around, and there's a real weird shopkeeper there who doesn't seem really interested in actually selling anything because he keeps asking him questions like, oh, do you have landscapes? No, we don't have them. Well, what about this one? It's eight pounds. <laughs> it's sold already. It's sold already. So he he's taking a look around there, and but he kind of ducks out of there and goes out to the nearby park, which is a real park. Apparently, is very much the same now. Yep. Uh, I forget what it was called, Meyerly or Morley. He's or, taking pictures of pigeons at first. Yeah, he's just taking pictures of the park. It's a lovely like green space, and he's just you know tooling around taking pictures. And then we begin the sequence where it's, it's silent for like five minutes or oh, something, yeah. and he notices a couple. Uh, in the distance, and and it's shot all always shot very long, like as, as if he's looking from way across the park. He just sees these two people. Yeah, we have no of, idea what they're what they're saying. We have no idea what they're saying, but we get the impression that they're a couple and they're kind of frolicking around a bit. And so him being the photographer, he is he's like, oh, I got to get me some real life shots. And so he starts creeping around, taking pictures of the these two people, um, and doing some really strange, like maybe good for composition on the screen but strange for a photographer to do like when he goes up next to a tree and he's taking a picture behind like the arm of the the tree as if that's somehow like why is he standing right in the bush of the tree to take the picture that doesn't make any sense like it feels like that would just get his way and when he's like oh, hiding behind this fence that it would be clear that you can see this guy behind the fence it's not a very big fence yeah or or standing behind the tree and then going to the next tree and like it's it, it's, it's very weird but he takes all these pictures of this couple and at some point the woman of the couple looks over and notices him. Uh, and he finishes taking pictures and goes to take off, but she chases after him and is not happy. And, of course, he snaps another picture of her as she's coming right down the way at him. Yeah. Let's play a little of the dialogue here, yeah. too, because um, this is the first instance we get of something's not right yeah. here. It's not, she's not just upset. There's obviously something else going on. What are you doing? Stop it. Stop it. Give me those pictures. You can't photograph people like that. Who says I can't? I'm only doing my job. Some people are old fighters. Some people are politicians. I'm a photographer. This is a public place. Everyone has the right to be left in peace. It's not my fault if there's no peace. You know, most girls would pay me to photograph them. I'll pay you. I have a charge. There are other things I want on the reel. Also, I don't know if the laws are different in Britain, but she does not understand how public property works. She says, you're in public, everybody's entitled to peace. And No, you're not. In public, that's the place you can be taking pictures of, generally, and you don't have any say over it, because it's public. 
And can I say one thing, Jason? Sure. Um, based on this this lead actor, this lead character, mm. I think I like Ben now. Yeah? He is dreamy. Yes. I would say, he's a stunning young man. You mean uh, Thomas? Yeah. Yeah, you know, he is a good looking dude. He, yeah. Uh, it's definitely got that swinging 60s vibe. Because that's how homosexuality works, right? I could just decide that I'm gay yeah, now. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's okay. right. You've made that You're choice. You're not born now. with it. No, you, no, It's no. choice. No, I mean, a- anybody can just decide, hmm, this thing that I was not interested in at all, now I exactly Now can. it makes my penis now, hard. Exactly. You just you just snap on a dime. There we go. There we go. Be sure to contribute to Mike Pence's uh, re-election campaign. <laughs> David Hemmings, where are you at? Yeah. Oh, wait, he, he died. No. That's sad. That's sad. Was it long ago? 2000-something. Oh, okay. So he made it. He made it to the 21st century. I thought you were going to say, so he may still be alive. He may still be alive. He may have faked his death. He may still be fresh. Yeah, exactly. Ew. <laughs> You're the worst. You shouldn't have agreed to it before you thought of it. So, yeah. So she wants those pictures. He doesn't want to give them up. She really wants those pictures. She bites his hand. She, yeah. She grabs the camera and they have a struggle and she bites his hand. And he doesn't... He barely reacts to that. Yeah. He must have nerve damage. But, uh, so he just, he gets his camera back and she takes off and he goes back to the antique shop for some reason and ends up chatting with the boss in a scene that I thought was going to go somewhere, but didn't really go anywhere. I was confused by this too, because I know he's like a photographer, Yeah, but he's also like an agent for someone who wants to buy the antique shop. Like that, that was a strange thing to me. Like I, I didn't understand that subplot. I kind of understand. Okay. So I kind of understand that in this movie, he's kind of, uh, he's kind of bored mm. with the fashion models or whatever, right? And I think he's always looking for some way to express himself. Yeah. And I think that antique shop is like that kind of in like. Well, and he ends up buying that huge ass wooden propeller because he's like, this is a thing that art, art, artsy people should have, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's basically this movie is kind of critiquing that um, '60s new wave at yeah. the same time as critiquing the past. Yes, absolutely. So that art for the sake of art. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of it's kind of taking both sides. I think. Yeah, and so he he gets the he buys the propeller, but he can't really fit in his car, so he leaves it there to get delivered. And he goes off to see his agent, and there's some guy following him. Uh, maybe, maybe it's At never that's, clear. It's never clear, but that's the impression that he seems to have. Yeah. So when he returns, he goes to see his agent, and they talk about the book, and he says that he got these pictures, and they'll be great for the end of it because it'll end on a much more positive note because it's a lot of dark stuff that he's been taking pictures of. Obviously, the flop house, right? Yeah. yeah. People at their kind of lowest point in a lot of ways. But he wants to end on something nice. So the picture of a couple, perfect. So he goes back to his workplace and the woman from the park somehow meets him there. She's like, she like his, she's out of breath. Like she ran there straight from, somehow knew where he was and ran straight there. And she doesn't even answer him when he says, how did you find me? Yeah, she doesn't. She just runs over and she says, I want the film. And and he's like, well, I don't really want to give it to you. And, yeah. and she's like, okay, uh, I know what you want. And she takes off her shirt. Just takes her fucking shirt off, and to which he coldly says, oh, "What does he say in response to that?" He's like, "Put your shirt back on." Yeah, something it, like that. He like just a, walks away. He just walks away and goes and gets the film. But he doesn't actually get her film. He gets a, a thing of film. Yeah, and swaps it for the one that she wants and gives her that. Yeah, and he comes back out, and uh, then they start to flirt because obviously that's what's going to happen. And he takes his shirt off, and they start making out. And then they head to the bedroom, and things are just about to get uh, get going when there's a knock at the door. So he goes down, shirt off, to the door, and it turns out the propeller's here. Hey! hey! So he helps the guy drag the propeller in and comes back up to the girl, and they just forget all mention of sex and sit there topless and smoke and chat for a while before she takes off. I gotta say, though, the nudity is pretty tastefully done. Well, I mean, you don't see anything of Vanessa Ray. Oh, you do? Well, barely. 
I saw some nipple. A little bit of nipple. But yeah, no, so they, they chat for a while, and she gets dressed to leave, but then she tries to grab his camera, doesn't she? Well, are we, are we, are we going to talk about the weird uh, smoking scene? Oh, yeah, right, right. So, yeah, because they're sitting there, and... She's bopping her head to the music. She's just bouncing along to this, like, Herbie Hancock jazz in the background, and he's like, no, no, to the beat. And she's like, what? And he, she like slows down and then he gives her a cigarette and she like smokes the cigarette in a real slow way, takes a big old long drag off of and hands it back to him. And he's like, yeah, there we go. It's like, what are you even doing? It's almost like he's bucking convention. Or something. Yeah, exactly. He's, yeah. he's just, again, being arty for the sake of being arty yeah, in this situation. Yeah. And maybe this is part of his game. It almost feels like Antonioni is like... His his movie is like ah, ah ah you kids and your music you know what I mean like he's, it's like an old man yelling at the clouds mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah no she at one point she sends him into the kitchen for tea and grabs his camera and then tries to take off but he somehow manages to get there before he's her. like do you think I'm doff yeah exactly he pulls like a fucking Benny Hill and just is suddenly there um but but they seem to make enough of a connection that uh, she gives him his phone her phone number mm-hmm. and she takes off and so. That's it for That's her. That's it. For we her. don't see her ever again. Well, we might see her at one point. We see her in the distance. When he goes to the club later on, he sees her in line, and then she takes off. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. Oh. That's why he goes into that club, I think. Oh. Um, but yeah, so we'll get there. Uh, so, of course, he develops the pictures, and he blows them all up, and he's looking at them. Oh, blow up. Blow up. Title the movie. Oh, my God. <gasps> so, he's looking at them, and as he's looking at them, he starts to... He's looking at the... Over the fence, and the first picture he's looking at, he's kind of... He's like something, but he's not sure what it is. So he goes and grabs another picture and blows up another angle. And then he sees it. He sees a fucking guy in the background, like in behind the fence with a gun. And if you look at the way the pictures are, it looks like that this guy must get shot or something. Or, or he doesn't see, actually, he doesn't think that. He just sees a guy with a gun. He thinks he prevented a murder. He thinks he prevented a murder by stopping. By interrupting. By interrupting yeah. this, yeah. So and he calls his agent and tells him that hey I got took some photographs I saved a man's life today <laughs> yeah and I think this sequence by the way where he's piecing this all together yeah. no music mm. but it's it's such a well done scene absolutely it's just like the, the, compelling yeah the tension is there and the, like the director added nothing sound wise to it it's cutting between him staring yeah at these photographs and his face and figuring out what's going on so and then those pesky girls show up again. The blonde and the brunette. Blonde and the brunette, and and this time he's into it. He's gonna do something for them, which devolves into so. It's so kind he, he of goes a rape to, scene. Well, he, so first off, he basically tells them to make him tea and takes him into the kitchen. Right, we can make Irish tea. Irish tea, and then he gets a phone call and goes to take the phone call, and they wander into where his costumes are and start playing around with the costumes and trying them on. And then he comes in uh, and basically rips off the costume that one of them is wearing. Yeah, the blonde and, girl, I think. Yeah, blonde yeah. girl, and exposes her breasts and then knocks over the clothes and basically rips her clothes off and then they go into the main room, all three of them, and start ripping each other's clothes off on top of a purple curtain or, or, or piece of paper that's purple, like a background. Yeah, it's it's one of those weird, now, it's, it's one of those sex scenes that, much like, um, I mean, kind of like Goldfinger. Finger. I almost did the wrong I'm one. Say member. <laughs> yeah, kind of like Goldfinger that doesn't age super well. Um, in the sense that it's it's one of those things where it starts off as like it starts off as a sexual assault, as but then turns assault, into fun sex for everybody. But then it turns out, yeah, that they're into it. Like yeah. that's dangerous. It's worse. Yeah, that's yeah. worse than just Again, like a rape scene. M- maybe maybe seem cool in the sixties. A little harder to watch in twenty nineteen. Yeah, if you get them chicks down, if you, if you make your move, but then eventually they think you're hot. It's 
it's okay. And then it's he okay. pulls the classic move. He fucks them, and then they're like, "Are we gonna take pictures?" He's like, "Ah, we'll do it tomorrow. Tomorrow, <laughs> just leave your panties behind." That's right. I need proof. <laughs> I gotta show my agent. I gotta show my agent Ronnie. But he has to get out of there, so he heads back to the park. And when he gets to the park, he uh, he, for, he realizes he didn't take his camera with him, or at least he at least at some right. point he didn't have his camera with him. And, and it's he, at night, right? It's at night, yeah. yeah. He goes there. And, and there's he, that whole that sign that looks like a gun. Yeah. Did you notice that too when he goes in? Oh, the weird one in the background. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It looks like a gun. I was trying to figure out what that was. Yeah. And yeah, but then he finds under the tree the man's body. The man from earlier. Yeah. He turns out he's dead under this tree. And he's like, what the fuck? Should have brought my camera. Should have brought my camera. Then he gets startled by a noise. Yeah, twig, twig breaking, or So something. he takes off. He just, yeah, just peels. Yeah. And he goes back to the studio. When he gets back to the studio, he finds this place has been totally ransacked. Everything's been gone through. It's the government, man! And all his pictures are gone. They've all been taken. Except for one. Except for one, which has been was hidden behind a filing cabinet for some reason. Yeah. Just so he case. pulls it out to look at this picture, and it turns out this picture is a blow-up of the tree, and you can see the man's body, or at least he can see the man's body, underneath that tree. And actually, can I just say as like a fun little... Easter egg thing. Mm. Um, earlier in the movie, when he's taking photographs of them, and you know, like right at the end, when she runs towards the tree, turn around, turns around, sees him, and then keeps running. Yeah. If you look closely, you can see the body in that scene. Oh, okay, yeah. It's, I didn't notice it. It's ve- well, it's very, very difficult. But it, like, if you look, it's all green mm. in the grass, right? But if you look, there's like a tiny section. You can see the grass, and suit. you can see like yeah, that there's definitely something laying. There. Wow. Good, 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 Antiononi. Antonioni. Antonioni. <laughs> One of these days I'll get it right. <laughs> so he drives into town and uh, after he, after the at being at the studio and he sees this mysterious woman again. Uh, and she's waiting in line to get to this club. And he sees her and tries to chase after her, but she takes off. And he goes around a corner and she's not there. And he can't find her. So he goes into the club. It's the Yardbirds. It's the fucking Yardbirds. So, I didn't realize that at first. Uh, although I saw their name in the credits and didn't put two and two together so the yardbirds for those you don't know a british band from the 60s 50s yes. 60s and two of the members jeff beck and mm. jimmy, page. jimmy page jimmy page of led zeppelin fame of course yep and jeff beck of jeff beck fame yes uh, they are performing a show to a an almost japanese level of stone face yes and <laughs> there has to be something going on here like, there yeah. has to be some kind of subtext yeah because like you think at a, at a rock show these guys are and these, it's not like these guys are playing like a quiet like like ballad or something. No. Like they're playing a pretty rockin' song for the time. It and almost like, did you find it almost made the, the this part of the movie seem kind of like dreamlike? Dreamlike, but also from the lens of somebody who grew up in the 90s, it felt like almost like... Like, did you ever see that episode of The Simpsons where they go to Lollapalooza and everybody's just kind of like standing, just like swaying and, and watching it, just yeah. being disinterested? Like, it, g- it gave me that feeling from the lens of somebody who grew up in the 90s. Like, but I don't think, but I think it's more what you're saying. Like, they were, it's this dreamlike state of everybody just kind of stone faced staring. Well, they are like that until. Until Jeff Beck uh, is having some issues with the amp amplifier. Yeah. Amp amplifier. He's having some issues with the amp, and it, it's crackling, and he's getting mad at it. And then finally, some dude with a cigarette in his mouth comes up on stage and tries to fix it. And he just fucking says, "Fuck this shit!" And he and he and he goes all, uh, um, I guess, Pete Townsend on it. Yeah, sure. That always destroyed his guitar. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them do. Yeah, that's true. A lot of them do. But he just fucking destroys his guitar on the amp, and fucking tosses the neck of the guitar out into the crowd. And then the crowd goes fucking nuts. We finally see some yeah. life breathed into them as they all start scrambling. It's almost like they're just guitar. waiting for that gimmick. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then Thomas, I guess he decides, hey, I went in on this too. He jumps into the pile and he manages to get a hold of this neck and takes off out the door with it. And yeah. run down, runs down the street running from people. And eventually he gets away. And he's standing there holding the neck and he's just like, huh, whatever. And he just tosses it on the ground and walks away. Well, <laughs> Why and, did I want this? Yeah, and I and I have like, I was going to say this for a little bit later, but I guess I would read this now because there's a, uh, a theory about this from a film historian. Uh, film historian Peter Brunette. And he kind of talked about the guitar scene. This is a, He did like a little commentary over the movie. Mm. And he says this. It's a little lengthy, but bear with me here. It's a very interesting sequence and leads, I think, to the to the ultimate meaning of the film here, especially as it comes out in the end, because we're getting close to the end here. Yeah. Uh, this is the Yardbirds. One of the things the mo- most remarkable about this scene is that until the breakout at the end of the scene, everyone here looks like a zombie. He says, now remember that this is the swinging London of the 60s, and I think Antonioni is offering a very sharp comment. Uh, he has this push-pull, this kind of divided feeling about this about this era. Um, on one hand, he's attracted to it, and he was attracted to the sexual freedom and all that goes with it. On the other hand, I think Antonioni sees through this so-called sexual freedom and realizes that it brings a lot of difficulty with it as well. So throughout the film, in the party, in the Yardbirds concert scene, we have some very bored-out people who don't look like they're having very much fun at all. And part of their act, of course, an early version of punk rock, was breaking up their instruments and throwing them out to the crowd as uh, the Yardbirds thing. Uh, and there's a violent fight that takes place for this neck of the guitar, and yet once David Hemmings has grabbed this neck of the guitar and taken it outside, it's out of its context. That means it's completely meaningless once it's out of that once they're out of that location, and therefore completely useless and worthless. And he throws it away. The important point here being that meaning and the construction we put on reality always always a group social function, yeah. and it's contextual. Any word can mean anything in a different context. It's the context that determines meaning. And that's what you'll find here, and we'll find out very vividly in this guitar scene. There's nothing more meaningful than this object at that moment, because it's a part of the environment. It's a part of the scene. People are trying to kill each other to get at this artifact, this sacred thing filled with meaning. And David Hemmings is right in there with the best of them. He wins. He's rescued it, this intensely meaningful object. Yet, out of context, it's just a broken piece of guitar. Yeah. Um, and to verify the point and bring it home powerfully, someone else comes along after he throws it down. They pick it up, look at it, and then they also throw it down. Yeah, it's just a, I just think it's an interesting kind of look at that. There's many things in this world that are that only have value because we all agree they have value, and it, and, and it's like money itself. You know, in, in our grand social context, money has value because we all agree it has value. But at the end of the day, it's just a piece of paper. It's and like it's, you get yeah, it's like you get an autograph from someone. Yeah, it's really cool in the moment. Holy shit, I got this person's autograph. Are you really going to care about it in like? A week? Or is it going to be worth anything at any time? Is it actually going to have value? It might because you got an autograph of somebody that got famous and somebody decided that they were willing to pay that much money for it or whatever, or they would, or they don't. And it's just a writing on a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why people personalize autographs so you can't make money off of that's it. That's right. That's what you do. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so after this, uh, after this scene, yes, he runs out, drops the guitar. What comes next, Jason? He goes to find his agent. And he finds his agent in a degenerate marijuana den. Pot party. A pot party. Uh, like, in a way that it's, it's it literally walks in. It's like an opium den, except they're smoking weed. Yeah. And they've got this, they've got a big pile of fucking ditch weed ground up on the table, and they're rolling the worst-looking joints out of it. And... It's kind of like what I would imagine uh, if they had been able to go a little further, what I would imagine that scene in Darling would have been like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just a little, little more hardcore. Yeah. And so everybody's high as shit. He gets in there. He sees Varushka. And he's like, wait, I thought you were in Paris. And she goes, I am in Paris. 
And so he goes to find his agent, and his agent, of course, is also super high. Two joints at once. Two joints at once. He's going sublime on this shit. He smokes two joints in the morning, and he smokes two joints at night. Yeah. Um, so he's really fucking stoned. And having been really fucking stoned good 65 to 70% of the last... 20 years, I gotta say that sometimes you just don't know what's going on. And especially when somebody comes up to you with something that intense. So he's like, dude, dude, I found a body in the park and I got pictures of it. And we need, I need you to come see it because I need a witness. And he's just like, what? <laughs> R- R- Ronnie, Ronnie literally goes, I'm, but I'm not a photographer. But I'm not a photographer. Like, <laughs> How will I see it if I don't have a camera? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is an interesting, uh, now that I think about it, that's an interesting thing to say. Right? Because um, of what happens after this. Yes. Uh, but he's just, yeah, so he's too stoned to really figure out what's going on. But Thomas just gives it up and and joins in the fun. Yeah, he wakes up at his house the next day and then goes to the park. And sure enough, the body's gone during the day. During the day. And if you notice too, the sign that had the look of kind of like a gun, it's still there. But during the day, it doesn't look like anything. It doesn't look like anything. No, it just looks like some weird uh, just symbol, weird corporate symbol. Yeah. He kind of wanders off, and as he's wandering off, he sees these group of students, these mimes, come by again. They're all having their hullabaloo and being real loud for mimes. Uh, and then they pull the Jeep over near, next to a tennis court, and I'll jump off. And then they all go into mime mode and go silent. And two of them run into the tennis court and start playing an imaginary game of tennis, Brendan. Mm-hmm. Full-on swinging and hitting it back and forth. And, oh, I missed. Uh uh-huh. And then everybody's silently at the side cheering them on. And Thomas is watching this and staring at them. And at one point, one of the mimes hits the quote-unquote ball a little too quote-unquote hard, and it, and it flies out over the quote-unquote fence. Actually, it shouldn't be quote-unquote. The fence is there. It's a real fence. <laughs> the fake ball flies out over the real fence and lands on the ground, and they encourage Thomas to throw it back to them, and so he goes and picks up the fake ball and gives it a good old cricket toss and throws it, uh, a cricket bowl, I guess you would say, and tosses it back in, and they resume their game. And we see a shot of Thomas's face as he watches the game. And as he's watching the game, we start to hear the sound of a tennis ball being hit back and forth. Faintly. Faintly. Yep. And then he turns around and walks away, and the movie ends on a shot of a patch of green grass. But before the end comes up, he disappears. Does he? He disappears. He actually, he actually fades out from the scene. Oh. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff with that. that. How did I miss that part? It's very I quick. I thought I saw him walk off screen. It's very quick. He walks off... Just before the end comes up, he this fades movie out. Field of Dreams yeah, pops up. <laughs> if you build it, he will come. So yeah, that's how the fucking thing ends. Oh, so we should know right now. This mystery is never solved. No. We don't even know the players behind the mystery. No. We don't know if. Oh, well, I mean, we, we don't know if it even happened. We don't even know if it happened. We don't know who did the murder. We don't know what role that uh, Vanessa Redgrave had in it, or if any. Mm-hmm. We don't know who that person was in the bushes. We don't know anything. This is a murder mystery. This is the biggest fuck you ending. <laughs> but like, I haven't seen a fuck you ending this bad since the ninth gate. <laughs> but, but like, not in the same sense of a usual fuck you ending. Yeah. Like, a usual fuck you ending is like, oh, fuck you, you couldn't come up with an ending. This is very deliberate. Yeah. This is very deliberately uh, meant to be so, like, fucking obtuse. Yeah. And, and to make you question the, the very nature of this movie's reality and, and, and Thomas's perception of it. So the big question, Brendan, is did any of this actually even fucking happen? What do you think? Well, based on what I've seen in the movie and everything, it, it seems to me that the most obvious thing to me is, so if we go back to Bill earlier when we said Bill the painter was talking about how he looks at the paintings after he's done and he figures out what's there. I mean, that's obviously a big foreshadowing to 
um, Thomas staring at these photos. That whole scene where he's putting yeah, it he's staring at these photos, and you're not seeing anything for the longest time. There's mm-hmm. nothing there. But but as it goes on, he starts to see what he wants to see, subconsciously wants to see. He starts to see something. That's the question. And that's is, the question. Are we seeing what is actually there, mm-hmm. or are we seeing what he's seeing? Yeah. Because notice the only time he sees a dead body in person. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have his camera. No, and he's by himself. So there's no photographic evidence, and he's by himself. And and there is a scene, too, where he shows, we kind of glazed over, but he shows Patricia yeah. one of the photos, and she said, oh, that just looks more like one of Bill's paintings, yeah. which is a big Again, clue big right foreshadow there. there. Yeah. Like, it, 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 so it's not, I, I think Antonioni did this intentionally vague hmm. to make you kind of question the whole way through. It's kind of um, got a similar vibe to Don't Look Back in that you... In the same idea, don't look like now, one, or don't look now. Yeah, that's a that's a, don't look back in anger is an Oasis song, and look back in anger is a movie. Ah, yeah. uh, don't look now. Yeah, not not in that they're the similar movie, but but they have a similar vibe of that unease. That yeah, comes from not knowing what's really going on. For well, sure. Now, of course, with with don't look now, there ends up being a there ends up being a thing. Yeah, thing. Our, yeah. our red dwarf friend, <laughs> red red dwarf. Da da da! You smeghead. Jason, before we get dive even further into this movie, talk about a little of the background, we're going to take a brief break. Okay. And we will be right back. Ba, 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 ba. Can I paint you a picture, sir? Paint me a picture, sir. I want to paint you a picture of an app. An app, you say? An app. Well, what is an app? Well, it's short for Apple in some regards. No, that's not it at all. You're but wrong. It, I knew what the answer was. The answer was application. In this regard, it's short for application. Oh, yes. But it is available on your Apple. Oh. On your iOS device, on your I Android. I see the pun now. Yes. It's an app that allows you to listen to podcasts mm. and get paid for it. Oh. Get money. I don't have to pay them. They pay me. They pay you. Absolutely smashing. Pod coins. Ooh. And you can use these pod coins. A sack of them, you say? Uh, sure. <laughs> you, yes, they will give you a sack with a dollar sign on it. Woohoo. And you can use them to exchange for gift cards. Oh. Or you can donate to charity. What a fine notion. Mm. Absolutely. Quite. Quite. You can listen to all of the podcasts. You can listen to this one, as Ooh. you should. Absolutely, you should. And if you use the promo code ScreenPod, that's S-C-R-E-E-N-P-O-D, you will receive 300 bonus pod coins just for signing up. 300 pod coins you wouldn't have had otherwise. So what do you have to lose? Get your pod coin, listen to your podcasts, get paid, get gift cards, get yourself a nice something. Pod coin. Get paid to listen to podcasts. And we're back. Woo! So, Jason, let's get into the background of this movie a little bit. Sure. Um, we talked about the opening scene uh, inspiring Austin Powers. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about David Hemmings, though. Yeah. Because I don't know if you know this. I don't. But <laughs> but they're uh, the Hemdale Film Company. Have you heard of them before? They the, they did uh, Platoon. The I know Last, that one. The Last Emperor, uh, Terminator, Return of the Living Dead, River's Edge. Um, they're co-produced a lot of these big movies. Yeah. And David Hemmings actually fun, uh, founded this corporation. Oh. So uh, the goal, basically, of this whole thing was to cut back on some of the high taxes being paid by British actors at the time. Mm-hmm. And, and like not all British actors. So it was a tax avoidance scheme. <laughs> I mean, I think not all British actors are making top dollar like uh, fucking uh, Richard 
Harris. No, certainly not. So he started. Uh, so the, so the company started off by getting involved in stage plays, concerts, and actually they were even one of the co-promoters for the Rumble in the Jungle fight wow. between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Uh, Hemmings actually left the company in 1971, so he didn't stick around for a long time. But he did find he did found it, and like I said, they did go on to do some really big movies before they eventually folded. I think in like the mid 90s. I hope he made some money off that. Um, yeah, I think he sold sold off his assets. So. Okay. Um. Here's an interesting thing. So we talked about this mystery never getting solved. And like, Mm. you know, is it really happening? Is it not happening? Well, Roger Ebert published a letter by this actor named Ronan O'Casey. And Ronan O'Casey plays the man who was uh, having that illicit moment with Vanessa Redgrave. Ronan O'Casey. So he's half Japanese, half Irish. Ronan (laughs) O'Casey. Ronan (laughs) O'Casey. My favorite. Uh, in 1999, this letter was really was published. Mm. Uh, basically, this letter claimed that the film's mysterious nature is the product of an unfinished production. <laughs> so he claims that there were scenes which would have depicted the planning of the murder and its aftermath. So scenes with Vanessa Redgrave, Sarah Miles, and Jeremy Glover. As Sarah Miles was uh, played uh, Patricia, I believe. Um, Vanessa's new young lover who plots with her to murder me, he said, were never shot because the film went seriously over budget. Wow. Uh, two scenes in particular in this movie give credence to that theory. Uh, there's one in the restaurant when uh, Glover's character is seen apparently tampering with Thomas's car. So Glover, I guess, is the guy who oh. he thinks is following him. Okay. And then you can see him tampering with uh, Thomas's car briefly. And there's another scene where Glover and Redgrave are glimpsed together in a rover, apparently, following his Rolls Royce. So apparently if you look really quick, hmm. there's a scene with him and Vanessa following him in another car. So there's an interesting little theory there um, from one of the actors. Which would be a really interesting thing, because the idea of a movie not being finished and, and being regarded as a classic, you think of, like, if they actually finished this movie would in the way that maybe it was supposed to be, would anybody remember it? I don't know. <laughs> would it, it, be, it would be more of a typical... Yeah. Just a forgettable, uh, like, like murder mystery thriller type thing, you know, made by somebody who wasn't Hitchcock. And if you look at Antonioni... And some of his other movies, he's not the murder mystery guy no. at all. His movies are much like this. They're very art house, very. And actually, this is his first English language movie. Oh, so and when I when I saw that this was on the list, I actually assumed that it would be in Italian with mm. subtitles, but it was not. So I got to tell, tell you this too. In 1966, Jason, this is the year after Darling comes out. Yes. So as you know, censors are not so open at this no. time. Um, but as a way of bypassing the production code, MGM created this company called Premier Productions. Mm. This was a dummy company, which had no uh, agreement or affiliation with the production code, and therefore did not have to adhere to its standards. Uh, MGM did not have to cut the full frontal nudity, because there was some, especially in the threesome scene, yeah. or other sexually explicit scenes, and they maintained all rights to the movie. When the film opened to rave reviews and excellent box office, which, okay, budget for this movie, $1.8 million. Mm. Box office, 20 Wow. Yeah. Wow, this movie was Huge. a fucking smash hit. Huge hit. So when it, when it opened to this success, uh, the, this defeat was considered the final blow for the production code's credibility yeah. and was replaced with a rating system less than two years later. Thank goodness, because that production yeah. code was so dumb. <laughs> um, Antonioni was a bit of a nutball. I don't know really? if you guessed it from watching this movie. He didn't like the color of the grass, for example, so mm. he simply just had people spray paint it green. Wow. That explains why it's so damn green. The whole lawn. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm surprised that Thomas wasn't completely covered in paint by the end of it. Uh, major, got to throw out major props to Vanessa Redgrave when she when she was filming this because she was also appearing on stage every single night. 
plus two matinees a week at the same time as filming this movie. Wow. And to be fair, her role isn't super big in this movie. I mean, but she's in two two big scenes, I but suppose. But if the actor is to be believed, yeah. then... I suppose then, yeah, if they actually did film a lot more of it, then yeah, Jesus. Uh, the last thing I wanted to mention is uh, the parent, apparently at one point, David Hemmings has this thing, had this thing when he would, he would be like... Uh, Need to test the director's metal. Mm. We need to see how much he can put up with. We want to want to see if he's uh, if if he can take a joke. Oh wow! So they pulled this prank on Antonioni to make it look as if the Rolls Royce in the movie had exploded. <laughs> so basically, they had this big noise, and they rolled out all this like machinery and stuff in his kind of line of view. And uh, the man who bought the prop car or bought the car was freaking out. But Antonioni <laughs> just simply. Uh, showed up, looked under the hood, everyone was laughing, and he just simply looked at David Hemmings and says, there's no time for this, David. This is foolishness. We're here to work. <laughs> that was it. That was it. There's no reaction whatsoever. Wow. Shall we deep dive? Get into it. Okay, we talked about this with Brazil. Yeah. We talked about, uh, what did you call it? Retro-futurism? Retro-futurism. Retro-futurism. I think there's a little bit in this movie. You think so? For well, not, maybe not retrofuturism, but a, something similar to that. Uh, did you notice that he's driving this like Rolls Royce, this beautiful car? Mm. He has a CB radio. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't quite get what that. What was up with that? Who he was talking to, or, or... well, I, yeah, like I'm guessing his assistant, maybe on the sh- at the shoot. Yeah, but like, does that mean they have a CB radio inside the building? Well, I mean, he just, he, I thought he was just—he just had like a walkie-talkie kind of thing, but but it was, in the, it was only in his car, though. Oh, makes sense. I mean, CB radios, you know, that were certainly more popular in the seventies, but they must have been around in the sixties. Yeah, it was just a weird like yeah. juxtaposition of that in the Rolls Royce, and that made me think that was like his his. I wouldn't thing. call that retrofuturism, but I would call that like he's got a really expensive car. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely, he's he's on the on the edge of the future. Um, that also might be one of those weird artsy things, like oh, I have a I have a CB radio in my Rolls. Although Rolls. fucking Mannix had a car that had a telephone in it uh, in the sixties <laughs> that you could actually get if you wanted to spend thousands of dollars. Right. I also think in the opening scene when you got all these young people, they're doing that Rag Week celebration and they're screaming and they're running. Did you notice there's like we talked about Antonioni um, kind of having mixed feelings on that on this burgeoning yeah. era. Uh, there's a moment where there's, there's a British guard mm. and he's like walking the same way as them. But then as soon as they go past him, he turns his yeah. back and walks the other way. It's almost like turning your back on that generation. You know what I mean? It's I like, just thought he was on patrol and that was where his, uh, his spot was to turn. You have to, you have to look deeper. I have to look deep into Antonioni's soul. You got it. You, you got his name. Right? Yeah. I'm getting better at this every day. There's little details that I like too. There's like, um, I noticed that one of, it's weird that I, I don't know why I noticed this, but like the scene where he's talking to those two girls that want to fuck him mm. or want, I guess they want to shoot, but you know, eventually they want to fuck him. Yeah. But he's got like a weird, like chafing on one of his fingers mm. and it's like obviously from, you know, what he does, but yeah. I thought that was just such a weird, cool little that's detail. A neat, yeah. I didn't notice that, but that's a neat that he would have like the blister from change it or from like you know cranking the film or whatever that's, yeah that's cool or the callus i suppose yeah it was like a callus that's exactly what it was so we talked about we're not sure if this is real or not but i'll ask you this do you th- if it's real do you think like what do you think what's your, what's your theory if this is real like what do you think happened do you think yeah, this I, is I think like- i think this is all in this guy's head i think um in my view he's a guy that is bored easily and he's a guy that is able to kind of work himself into some sort of a hallucination to entertain himself. I think that that's part of what it is. I think he's so bored 
with his kind of career as a fashion photographer that he he needs more excitement in his life and this is his subconscious like pushing him to get involved in something that is bigger than himself and that's kind of how i read it uh that he's yeah he's just able to generate this this mystery like this guy you know he wants to have something like a hitchcock movie he wants to have some excitement in his life and so we, we get that. We get he wants the, to feel like he's doing something purpose. Yeah, with well, purpose. I mean, well, that's the thing. Exactly. He's he's kind of almost living a bit of a secret agent fantasy. Uh, not even a secret agent. Well, but you know what I mean. But like like the guy on the run, the guy that knows too much, the man who knew too much. Well, no, a hundred percent because right from the opening, he's undercover. Yeah, exactly. That flop house. That's totally like a like a secret agent spy yeah. type deal. Yeah, and and of course he gets the girls. He has sex with those two girls, which yeah. he may very well have not had sex with them. That might have just been a fantasy while he was jerking off in the back room. It could have been. It could have been. We don't know. Yeah. Uh, but it would fit in with this idea of like, he, he needs life to be more exciting than it is instead mm-hmm. of just being this like fashion photographer. I agree. Yeah, so... So you don't th- you don't think it happens any of this? Happens. But also, but then that also makes me wonder: like, was the whole pot party thing completely made up? Because when he sees Verushka, and he says like, "Oh yeah, I thought you were supposed to be in Paris," and she says, "I am." Like, what does that mean? Is or is she like just blowing him off and being like, "Oh, that was my excuse to get away from you"? I thought that was I. I, I mean, my guess was just that she was really high. <laughs> that, well, there's that too. That is certainly a distinct possibility. She's just really fucking stoned. Yeah, but which, which is funny. Which is funny because she's playing herself. So. <laughs> But yeah, that's kind of my approach to it. Uh, uh, what do you think? I kind of thought it was real for a while. Mm. And I kind of thought it was this idea of like... Like, here's a murder mystery. But done in a way where it's not like a like cinematic in that, in that, you know, you get all the clues lined up and they perfectly start to come together and you solve it. I feel like this is more of like a realistic way it would go down. Like, maybe the clues don't line up. Maybe you don't even find out who's involved. Maybe you don't even find out why it happened. That's actually probably the most likely scenario in, in a given situation like that. Like, why would you as an individual necessarily be able to find any clues or have any access to the information of how that would go down? I mean, the guy's a photographer. Yeah. He's not a detective. He, well, he has that radio, though. He's, maybe that's part of it. He's, he really wants to be like that sort of person, and that's why he has a CB radio in his car, and he drives a fancy fucking James Bond-esque roadster. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's just like... It's it's like the opposite of a Bond movie. Like, so this was 66. Uh, had Goldfinger come out by this yeah, point? 64. So maybe this is sort of a comment on that, too. I mean, Dr. No had come out in 62. Yeah. So And From Russia With Love in 63. So there have been three Goldfinger Bond Goldfinger being the more, like, traditional Bond movie. But there have been three Bond movies Yes, three point. by that point, and it was a huge success. And, a cultural and, and the books. Milestone. The books were the books. before that. Absolutely. And you had spy movies before that. So, I mean, sure. it, was a, it was definitely uh, a trope yeah. at the time. I, I, I just... I like... I like how it doesn't give you that answer. Mm. You can kind of discuss it, and that makes for, you know, good stuff, good discussion like this, is that you're trying to figure out, like... Because, I mean, there's also a thing, the thing where, you know, maybe she's just upset because she was having an affair with this guy, and yeah. she was caught in a photograph. Well, that's it. I, I do believe she's real. I, at least in that first scene. I don't know that she's real when she shows up to his workplace and then, you know, yeah, like do you, do you Do you think his place is ransacked? Like, that's, for real? Yeah, well, that's it. I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe that was just... Uh, I don't know. Maybe he did that himself. Maybe, maybe... I mean, he was moving all those photos around all over the place looking at stuff, so maybe he got crazy and knocked some shit over. I don't know. Maybe those photos were never there. He and the girl are the same person. <laughs> oh, shit! What? Okay. You are now firing a gun at your imaginary friend, 
near four hundred thousand nights of Westeros. Goddamn, I love that movie. Um, don't hate me. <laughs> no, it's a great movie. So yeah, I don't know. It, it's I think it happened, but I don't know why. Like I definitely think parts of it happened, but I think there's a lot that is like his mind filling in what's going on. The other thing is though, like if you found that dead body at night. If you found that dead body, that dead body's been there. Oh, I guess it's just in the span of a day, yeah. right? But even then, that's a public place. Yeah. You think the cops wouldn't have already picked up that body? Like, well, when he goes back and it's gone, like you think there would be some indication of like, oh, there'd been like an, an ambulance or a morgue, uh, I guess, or like I caution tape or something, or a hearse that they would have rolled in and left tracks on the grass to like put this guy in a thing or whatever. But yeah, no, and no noticeably, indication. when he looks, there is a patch. There is a like a kind of a patch of grass that's sort of missing from where the body was laying. I don't know if I, I don't know if you noticed like, like, that. like a depression in the grass. Yeah, like a little bit. So it's like, so maybe he found the body. Someone knew. Okay, now we got to move the body because it's, uh, you know, at night. Maybe that was the person when the twig broke. Maybe that was that person coming over to move the body. Maybe, maybe that's his own but paranoia. Also, now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like in the beginning of the movie too, you can see in the patch of grass that's on the screen that you know the titles are being projected against it you can kind of see divots like that already in the grass like where it looks like areas where stuff has been sitting down or, st- or something was like laying there yeah. maybe I'm crazy but th- that th- I feel like that was in that first scene so maybe that's the implication that there's just there could be these flat patches all through this park anyways yeah yeah I don't know man it's a crazy movie uh, I do want to say that the wrestling sequence in this was much different than Women in Love. Much different. Much, much more, I would say, just physically entertaining. <laughs> I would say, to me personally. <laughs> these girls, I will say, I will say objectively, these girls are about 10% more attractive than Reed and Alan Bates. Whoa. But you know what? They, they worked at it, so they deserve it. Oh, um, another thing that I thought, it was kind of lampooning the sort of spy action hero thing yeah and maybe this is just that main character thinking he's this sort of or having illusions that he's this sort of person there's a moment where he goes to that pot party um and you know he tells ronnie about it and ronnie's like oh i'm i'm not a photographer i can't i can't go out there and he has this moment where he's like but i am (laughs) exactly a triumphant like hero moment i am a photographer but then it goes to nothing yeah like the like I don't know how to stress this more than this, guys, listeners. If you haven't seen this movie, there's literally no answer. No. There, it just ends with that mystery, and you don't know what happened. And that's probably why it's on this list. I mean, because it is a movie that sticks in your head, because yeah. you can talk about it and, and kind of go over it. In the same way, like I think we've mentioned it before, but like the last scene of The Sopranos. A lot of people were mad when that happened, but people still talk about it. Yeah. And I mean, we uh, you could talk about... And then it turns everything on its head again with this final scene. We mentioned the mimes playing tennis. Mm-hmm. Because it's like, oh, okay, are we making the point that he's participating in this because what he was seeing also wasn't really there? Mm. But then we hear the tennis ball a little bit. And then we're like, are we hearing what he's hearing? Are we hearing what we're supposed to be hearing? And why did he disappear at the end? <laughs> like, it's just... Um, is was it, he even real? Was he even there? Maybe he wasn't real. Everybody else in the movie was real, but he wasn't. Is, is it... Is it amb- now, there's an argument to be made. Is it ambiguity for ambiguity's sake? I don't, I don't think so. Like, yeah. I think there's enough in this movie to not make it be like... Because it's a very artsy movie. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like um, artsy for the sake of being artsy. Like, 
the main characters criticized in much of this movie for if, being. If what, if what our Japanese-Irish friend said... Uh, Ronan Ronan O'Casey. Ronan O'Casey. If, if what Ronan O'Casey said is true, it's, it's, it's ambiguity for necessity's sake, <laughs> ultimately. Which would be insane. Yeah. That would, like... That makes this... That makes me appreciate... If that's true... Then I I appreciate this movie even more. Then you gotta you gotta calm, you gotta give props to the editor. I don't know who the editor on this movie was, but Antonio only. <laughs> I mean, he's probably in the booth. Well, yes, spanking. Him. I have no doubt. Well, you I mean, do such a good job. He's doing. He's like uh, Kubrick watching dailies for eyes wide shut. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I, I I don't have anything else before we move on. Do you have anything else you wanted to mention, or I just I just was. I just found this movie fascinating, just because again it was so different than what I expected. Based on my sensibilities and and the brief interpretation of the plot, uh, so yeah, and, and the fact that we've talked about it at length is uh, is a good thing. Yes, it's a good thing. I will say. Well, Jason, I'm going to tell you at this point, this movie does go to the Oscars. Oh, it's only nominated for two awards. Doesn't win anything. Best cinematography and best supporting actress for Vanessa Redgrave. Nope. Nope. <laughs> it is nominated for Best Director for Michelangelo Antonioni. Hey. Uh, but it loses to uh, Fred Zinneman for A Man for All Seasons, which is a movie we will cover on the show at some point. Uh, and it also is nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Hmm. But it loses to a movie, and I don't know what this is, but it's called A Man and a Woman. Huh. <laughs> okay. Sounds like a good film. <laughs> um, at the BAFTAs, it also doesn't win anything. But it gets nothing. nominated. Nothing. It's nominated for Best British Film, Best Cinematography, and Best Art Direction. It does, however, take home the Palme d'Or at Cannes. Prestigious. Very prestigious. Wins several critics' awards. Um, and again, this movie inspired everything from Austin Powers. The Paul Rudd comedy, I Can Never Be Your Woman, has like elements of this. Uh, Mel Brooks. Blowout, of course. We'll just we'll discuss it lengthen in a future episode. Mm-hmm. The De Palma film. And uh, Coppola's uh, Francis Ford Coppola admitted to using a great deal of it when he made uh, the conversation. Oh yes, that's right. So yeah, so I mean, blow up. It's number sixty on the BFI Top One Hundred. It's almost it's in it's in the it's in the bottom half, but it's you know it's close. It's close to the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked it a lot. Yeah, I, enjoyed I it. think it made for some great discussion, and I think it's it's very ambiguous. It's uh, open ended. You could talk. You could you could fucking have a whole class on it for God's yeah. sakes. Like there's so much to get into. And I just I ultimately I really really loved how it was shot. I just loved how nice it looked. It's just a beautiful goddamn movie, Brendan. Ultimately, and uh, yeah, if, if you like how if you like good looking movies, check this one out. Don't need the blasphemy. Well, that's what I'm about. That's my bag, man. You can't stare me down. Zip. God, Jesus be praised. And I think it's got that. I think according to you know what I've read, it's it's got some influence too on mm-hmm. today's movies. So I think it should definitely be on this list. As far as number sixty, it might I might even put it a little bit higher. Yeah. Like I'm not saying like top ten or anything right now, but I, I think in the top fifty it sounds like a better spot for it at the moment. Well, we'll see where we end up. We'll I go. mean, we're almost through this list, Jason. No, yeah. we're, not, we're not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, well, now that Jason is back from his, uh, he he is in wedded bliss now. Everything uh, went well. There was no no problems. No, he and I are married. We are we, we are, are one. We are one. <laughs> um, now we get that sweet podcast marriage credit. 
where we get 300 extra pod coins. This is for signing up. Yep. <laughs> we do something wonderful that we love to do. We also get very scared. Yes. Because this is the moment where we will roll the dice and find out what number on the BFI Top 100 British Films list we are going to be talking about next week. Our fates lie in the hands of the universe, Brendan. So Jason, I believe it is your turn. It is my role. I'm pretty sure it is. But you know what? If it's not, you know what? Maybe it was meant to be. So, so let's do one at a time. Like we're gonna do one at a time. We gotta do this. Like we gotta. Should we get some like betting music? Like who wants to be a millionaire style? Uh, I would. <laughs> oh, my music was just gonna be. Or we could do it to piss off Justin McCollum and just play uh, Spanish Flea. <laughs> Hit it! <laughs> Boom! <laughs> okay, here we go. The tens. We are going to be looking at movies in the ooh the zeros, <gasps> the top ten. Oh, top nine. The top nine. Yeah. Oh, oh god, boy. this could be. <laughs> Although, <laughs> if we get double zero, that means it's uh, film a hundred. Right. But did we already do film a hundred? We did. All right. So <laughs> that was Killing Fields, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're going to be in the top ten probably here, unless we roll a hundred. So here we go. Four. Number four. Oh, we just missed it. <laughs> uh, okay, here we go, Jason. Number four. Next week, we are finally going to talk about the works of Alfred Hitchcock. All right. We are going to be discussing the 39 steps. That's weird that I brought that up earlier, and that was the one we rolled. Right? I swear, that was. this is not a work. We legitimately just rolled the dice, and that's what we got. We literally just got a four, missing Lawrence of Arabia by one. I have not seen the 39 steps in about a decade, so oh, okay. it'll be interesting to uh, watch it again. The only reason I saw it recently was there is a uh, Turner Classic Movies online course on Hitchcock. Oh, so I nice. watch it that way. So 39 Steps, 1935, Alfred Hitchcock, number four. Wow. Wow. That is, that is, we're, that's a top one. That's a big one. Big one, big one, big one. That's next week. So we will talk about that. But until then, Jason, I will say that you can follow us on Twitter. You can. At BFI underscore pod. You can also follow Jason on Twitter. That's at Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Where he posts links to wedding-themed pornography. That's what I've been doing all week. Just in <laughs> celebration. Here's a source filmmaker of my favorite characters from Overwatch. Fucking. But one of them's in a wedding dress. <laughs> Four weddings and a fuckerel. Sigma looks good in a wedding dress. Ha! Yeah. Is that a real porn star? No, that's a real Overwatch character. It's the newest one. Okay. And it's a dude. He doesn't wear shoes. Cool story, bro. Uh, so, and also, yes, I want to say to you, Jason. To me personally. To you and no one else. All right. So anyone listening right now, shut the fuck up while I talk to Jason. Close your ears. God save the queen. God save the screen. And for screening country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Snap! I took a photo of you. Uh Uh-oh. Blow it up.
my view is is that he is a guy who, when he's my view, in my view, he's a guy who's when he I'm living in a fucking Buster Keaton film over here or something. Jesus Christ! I gotta set my phone down. Hi, I'm Jay Bats. And I'm Michael. And we're the hosts of a very thought-provoking show called The What If Podcast. On it, we'll explore the big and little what-ifs of life and steer our listeners toward a better understanding of the real or hypothetical situations we might find ourselves in. Or not. On our journey, we'll learn interesting facts and fictions about the everyday world. And sometimes, most of the times, we'll dive headlong into rabbit holes that slide up against the subject and sharply turn away from it. Come along with us. We'll have fun and learn something new together. New episodes release every other Tuesday. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Music, and anywhere fine podcasts are archived. Was A Quiet Place inspired by signs it comes at night in War for the Planet of the Apes? Was Ready Player One influenced by Avatar, Wreck-It Ralph, and The Last Starfighter? Is a hurricane heist more influenced by Sharknado or Geostorm? These are the kinds of questions my guest co-hosts and I discuss on my podcast, Piecing It Together. Every week, we look at a new movie and try to figure out what other movies inspired it, whether it's the story, the character development, tone, or even use of music. Every movie was influenced by something that came before, and we want to figure out what. Check out Piecing It Together on your favorite podcast app or check us out on piecingpod.com. You can also follow us on social media at piecingpod. Piecing It Together is a part of the All Points West Podcast Network.